Podcast Starts. Hello everyone and welcome back to Now The Podcast Starts, a show which talks about horror, cinema and anything related that takes the interest of my wonderful co-hosts or myself. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan, as always, in Greater Manchester, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by... Stella Gaynor, roasting in Manchester. And also... Kirsty Warrow, nicely cool in Shropshire. <laughs> I, I feel like I should have said the temperature that I was at. Um, I, I'm also roasting, so listeners need to be aware that we are recording this on the hottest day of the year, uh, the 25th of June, which um, is the hottest day since yesterday, which was the previous hottest day of the year, and the day before that. And I think we've all got our windows open so that we're yes. nicely ventilated, so... There might be some extraneous sound that drifts in occasionally. Um, so just to warn the listener about that, it's it's part of the atmosphere that we're casting for this particular episode. <laughs> A so, sweaty atmosphere. Yeah, uh, an authentic uh, atmosphere. Yeah. Abs- <laughs> yes, absolutely. Verisimilitude. Um, that's, that's how Howard once characterised an excess amount of sound on one of our podcast recordings. So yeah, just just feel the realism. Um, Okay, so welcome everybody. This week we're going to be talking about TV horror in particular, the the cycle of US-led or US-inspired serialised horror on television that began in about 2010 and continued to some extent to this day. And Stella is our expert on that, so she's going to be leading us through that journey. But before we go there, have we got any news from life or or from horror that we'd like to share this week? Um, I have some some horror news. Go on, Kirsty. So um, I was quite excited yesterday to learn that Eli Craig, who is the uh, writer-director, I believe, or at least director, sorry, um, behind Tucker and Dale versus Evil, um, one of the the kind of great um, horror comedies of the last few years, um, has, uh, with Netflix, I think, just announced a uh, forthcoming horror rom-com, which is titled at the moment, The Hills Have Eyes For You. (laughs) So that sounds lovely. I like it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) The title is A Stroke of Genius, so um, I have high hopes. That's brilliant. Tucker and Dale is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, possibly Alan Tudyk's best role since uh, Firefly, but... um, yeah, I'm glad you saved that then, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? So I'm glad that you saved that by, you know, kind of mentioning Firefly. Cause... Oh, well, well, yes, absolutely. Oh, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't dare. I mean, I mean even he's... if Alan Tudyk had somehow not been in Firefly, but just his audition had survived, that audition yes. <laughs> would probably be better than most actors achieve in their careers. So, yes, and he's, no. you know, he's a very fine actor with many fine performances to his name, so... Uh, yes, true. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, but this is not the Alan Tudyk podcast. Okay, that's great news. Has that director <laughs> done anything else since Tucker and Dale? Because I haven't seen it, I have to say. I don't think so, but I, I, I might be wrong. Um, oh, okay. I'll just... So this is not terribly well researched. I, I thought, you know, um, that, they, they, that we'd all just get bowled over by the title and then move on. No, no, <laughs> I was that's thrilled, brilliant. thrilled with the title. Yeah, <laughs> uh, me too. All right, so so moving on. I don't have any <laughs> horror or life news, really, but I suppose we all have life news in the sense that 
This week in the UK, or at least in England, they've announced that the lockdown is going to be gradually eased, uh, which means we can hope possibly go back to the cinema and things like that over the next mm. few weeks. Um, I was wondering how, how it was affecting um, you guys. As you, as you both work in, in education, I don't, maybe it's not too clear yet because... because um, it seems to, well. I think at least as far as schools are concerned, they're just going to be closed until September, aren't they? So it's not going to make. make well, my much daughter to can go back because she's year six, so she can go back, and she has been able to go, have gone back for two weeks now, um, and she hasn't. But she is going to go back on Monday, so they're doing socially distant learning at her school. So they've got. I can't remember how many pupils they've got in because they've still got the key workers' pupils in, but they can only have a maximum of eight or seven kids in a classroom, so they can't have the whole school back. But apparently when they go back in September, it should be pretty much business as usual, but I am i don't know, I'm not convinced. Um, in terms of my work and education, we're all still online, and I don't know what's going to happen when I go back to work, as it were, in September. Well, October, really, it's universities, isn't it? We're very lazy, we don't do anything until October. Um, <laughs> well, we great. don't know yet what... We don't know what we're doing yet at all. I don't even know... Yeah, I just literally do not even know what's going to happen in September. So until then, I am sitting around and mainly complaining about the heat and drinking um, beer. Right. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> I've been working on my book, actually. I have been doing some, some stuff. I have been <laughs> trying to be vaguely productive, but a lot of that is just staring at my laptop and sighing <laughs> uh, do you want to do you want to do you want to tell the listeners what the book is Stella or, or, or yeah you... so it's based on my PhD so my PhD was as you will be surprised to hear TV horror in America and the cycle from 2010 to 2020 um, my book is essentially taking the same approach but with more case studies and in my PhD I only looked at horror up until 2017 so in my book I've extended it up to 2020 so I can talk about um, Castle Rock and, and things like that um, and it should be hopefully being published by Palgrave Macmillan and I'm just waiting for the go-ahead to finish off the writing for it really and it should be out in 2020 is the plan but yeah it'd be an academic text so it would be ruinously expensive so if mm. any of the listeners are at college or university when it's out if you could get your library to buy it that'd be great <laughs> <laughs> that's a definite appeal how about you yeah. Kirsty? um how, do you feel that you have any clarity going forward about what's going to happen with your work and and uh, and your children's school and things like that. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Well, no, so um, well, my daughter has been attending because key worker. Yeah. Um, or key, me and my husband are both key workers. Um, so she's been going anyway. Um, but she goes to a very small rural school, so it's you know they're pretty able to socially distance yeah. adequately. Um, in terms of my own work, we're at the moment sort of moving forward on the basis that you know everything is going to be normal but mm. there in the last couple of weeks we've got things you know kind of planned in for prepping for in case it's not so yeah until there's more clarity it's just really difficult to know what that's to kind do. of what we're doing yeah mm. although some people that think are kind of loathe to put all the effort into making all their stuff be online yeah then and then not, not be the case yeah so, yeah i think i'm probably gonna make as much of mine because i teach the teach theory modules so it's fine i'll just try and 
just need to change some of their like seminar activities to make it on onlineable. There we go. There's a yeah. word. Um, onlineable. Yeah. Onlineable. Um, and just yeah, see how it goes because I don't want to, you know, get to September then we go like you know right all online and I've done nothing. So yeah, I'm trying yeah. to walk walk the line so that I can manage both. I suppose. Yeah. Same. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, from my part, um, the effect on me is uh, I've had weird dreams, um, <laughs> mainly because I think uh, my practical life can't really be affected because even if the lockdown eases in all kinds of ways until um, uh, vulnerable elderly people are able to, to go out sure. safely again, I'm I'm still kind of isolated at home with my mum. But yeah. I have been uh, thinking about the the situation of everything opening up, the cinemas possibly opening up, um, and the government have some kind of mysterious plan that they're going to discuss <laughs> with the arts <laughs> arts organisations like theatres and things, so yeah. that they can open up. What um, in terms of socially distant theatre? Interesting. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I've worked in that area and have lots of friends who do, and I. All I can think is that there's going to be a proliferation of one-person plays. Um, oh no! For, for for the next couple of years, maybe two people, as long as you can guarantee that neither character ever goes within one meter of the other one. So it's that, just going to be a load of Alan Bennett shows, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what Alan started on, <laughs> on TV this week. Yeah, it's like, yeah. whoa, what do we got, guys? Let's <laughs> dig out the Alan Bennett. Um, Thinking of quite a different TV, though, of course, for the last couple of weeks, I've mainly been watching The Walking Dead um, in, prefer in preparation for this discussion. And somehow that's it's got mixed up in my brain with the lockdown being eased and shops opening. So I had this dream last night whereby um, there was a zombie apocalypse going on, but also there was all-night shopping. And... <laughs> I went into well I think the thing was because in, in shows like The Walking Dead you, everybody tries to be quiet all the time because noise attracts zombies but yeah. in my dream and following I think the logic of Boris Johnson let's just open all the shops up it'll be fine I think <laughs> someone decided yeah but if we open everything up at once then there'll be so much noise that the zombies won't know where to go and they won't kind of herd together. So, so it'll be <laughs> all right. So therefore, like, all the nightclubs were open and and uh, and restaurants were open all through the night. And, and you just had to be careful as you wandered through the streets because there might be one or two zombies that appeared. But, you know, you can deal with one or two at a time. It's fine, as long as they're not herding together. Yeah. Less yeah. than six, I reckon you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Not that I've thought about it in detail or so anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you're here, Stella. We want yeah. to know that detail. So that's where my mind's gone over the last couple of weeks. Can't imagine why. Um, <laughs> so on that note, I think we should start talking about horror on television then. Um, on just Yay. a note for the Yay. listeners, um, this is going to be a two-part discussion um, because... You know, it's mainly going to be com concerned with serialised horror stories on TV. We thought it was appropriate to break it up across two episodes. Um, and we're going to be going into some detail on some of the pro of the shows we talk about. 
So we can give no guarantees that there will not be spoilers for any TV horror show of the last 10 years because it's hard to discuss some of these shows in depth without spoiling certain plot developments. Yeah. Um, so basically, if there's any show, any horror show from the last 10 years that you've really wanted to watch but not got around to yet, probably don't listen to this episode. Go back <laughs> and, and watch the show first. Or maybe we could put in a list on the blog which uh, shows we've talked about. And if one of those is on your list of ones that you've not watched yet, then you can not listen. But if your show isn't on the list, then you can listen, if that makes sense. That's good thinking, Stella. I will do that. Um, Excellent. But we're definitely, undoubtedly, going in, going to be going into some detail yeah. about The Walking Dead this week. So Yay. that's your first one. <laughs> um, okay, so Stella... Um, yeah. we discussed this before and um, one of your areas um, one of your starting points is kind of been that until relatively recently TV was traditionally not seen as a place for horror um, yeah so and, and now it is so the, there's a journey to go on why was that perception a thing and, and how has it changed and why over recent years um Go ahead. Well, I think to explain that, I'll sort of, I'll do, basically, I've got some notes here, sort of a, a rough and quick history of, of TV drama development in the United States and how it got to the point it is now where we're absolutely saturated with lots of long-form, expensive dramas and horror taking up quite a large chunk of that. So um, up until the late 80s, early 1990s in America, um there was three major networks, NBC, CBS, and ABC. And they were free-to-air networks. They were entirely funded by advertising. And there was just three. So remember, like, in the UK, we just had BBC One, BBC Two, you know, Channel Four for a bit, and then we got Channel Five, and there was no other choice. It was like that in the States. Okay. So they just got these three channels. So you got three channels with roughly one share of the audience each. And people used to watch TV in a very different way than they watch it now. So it used to be people would just consume the medium of tv so rather than turning on and watching something that they actually were interested in they'd just turn on and watch something that was the least objectionable and that was called that whole strategy of programming was called least objectionable programming and basically tv just consisted of game shows sitcoms that were set in a family situation and like uh, police or medical procedural dramas and there wasn't really much deviation from it there was the odd little gem here and there like say twilight zone for instance or the night gallery yeah. but it was genuinely least objectionable programming so tv made for a very very white hegemonic middle class audience an audience with no wants or needs or desires or tastes and it was just basically <laughs> programming that would offend people the least so that people didn't switch over to one of the other two channels so tv was like that for ages and it was all a bit dull then in the late 80s early 90s you get a couple more networks arrive on the scene so fox turns up the wb turns up um, the cable uh, the cable act is passed in the mid 90s so a load of cable channels turn up so what happens then is you've got a process of audience fragmentation. So where you used to have three channels and they got all the audience to themselves, suddenly, if you imagine the audience as this massive pie, each channel is getting a smaller slice of the pie every time that there's more channels turning up. And then on cable, you're getting niche channels. So you're getting MTV or you're getting channels just for children's programming or you're getting Discovery where it's just science and nature or you get, I don't know, Nickelodeon or sports channels. So people are, be, are able to go and get from television exactly what it is that they want to watch 
Mm. So the networks, those old big three networks, they're panicking, really, really panicking in the mid-90s. So that's why in the mid-90s you get this little sort of mini mini explosion of more interesting television. So Buffy turns up, The X-Files turns up, stuff that's what you could now start to call genre TV. So mm. it's rather than just being another cop show or even the procedurals got better. So ER was on and ER was pretty good, wasn't it? So <laughs> TV just had to get better because everybody was now fighting for whatever scrap of the audience that they could get. And then they realised that genre drama could attract basically what we'd think of as a very, very loyal audience. Nerds, geeks, horror fans were, were generally loyal to the genre. So that's what TV channels want because they want to be able to say to their advertisers or their cable carriers who are charging money to get these programmes, we can give you this amount of audience and they're really dedicated, they're going to keep watching it. Anyway, so on we trudge into the early 2000s and AMC that The Walking Dead ended up being on gets taken over by a very visionary um, executive director called um, Charlie Collier. And he looks at channels like HBO, who are a pay premium channel, who have made, by this point, they've made The Wire, Oz, Sex and the City, True Blood, Sopranos. And he's looking at that really, really high quality content and the audience demographics that are going for that. And he thinks and he says to himself, well, why can't we have premium quality standard drama on cable, which is a lot cheaper for people? So he then um, gets Mad Men. If any of you watched that, that was a good one. And he gets oh, yeah. Breaking Bad. So these are two quite gritty, certainly Breaking Bad, very, very gritty, dark mm. drama that you just weren't getting on cable. You were getting it on HBO and Showtime, but you get, you're not getting it on cable and you certainly weren't getting it on network. So he gets those two TV shows, TV dramas, and they're doing really, really well. And all the critics are talking about it. All the press are going wild. Like AMC, it's the new channel. Everyone's going to love it. And then Charlie Collier says, right, we've got a new show coming. We're going to do The Walking Dead. And all of the TV industry went, What? You're going to do a serialised zombie show? Are you mental? <laughs> so what AMC did was... AMC was um, American Movie Classics. It was a channel that just showed movies. So when they started making dramas, they were using their dramas to sort of curate their movie library. So when they showed Breaking Bad, they would have films to lead in and lead out that week's episode of Breaking Bad that were relevant to Breaking Bad. You know, films with anti-heroes in, for instance. Okay. And they found that their... Every year they did a Halloween um, sort of horror movie festival. It was called, was it called Fright Fest first? I can't remember, Monster Fest or Fright Fest it was called. Um, and for those two weeks, AMC realised that they had their highest viewing figures when they showed two weeks of horror movies. So Charlie Collier is rubbing his hands together because he's thinking about all the dollar that he can possibly get. Robert Kirkman and Frank Darabont have come to him with The Walking Dead and said, yeah, do you want to make this? <laughs> this will be an excellent serialised TV show. So Collier goes for it. He said, right, I can curate this um, horror film fest of Halloween 2010. And so the two weeks before Halloween 2010, they're building up and they're building up. We're going to show The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead, um, their promotional run started 12 days before Halloween and it started in Japan. And they had zombies running through the streets of major cities all around the world. And it culminated on Halloween night in Los Angeles. And they showed the very first episode of The Walking Dead. So at this point, all the trade press is still going, it's never going to work, it's never going to work. Zombie TV show, how on earth does that fit with your slate of Breaking Bad and Mad Men? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? They show The Walking Dead, the first episode, it does really, really, really well. All the ratings are great, the demographics are great. Trade press, uh, it's a fluke, it's a fluke. It won't happen again, it won't happen again. Episode two, 
does even better episode three even better by the end of episode three charlie collier has already said yep we're going to do a second season because this is great <laughs> we've got loads of money we've got loads of advertisers banging our door down to advertise inside the walking dead and it just does fabulously well so what the walking dead did at industrial level and what it showed to television for that just six episode first season was there was a massive audience out there they really really like it the chatter on facebook and across social media was huge and the advertisers were willing to pay ridiculous amounts of money to advertise inside the commercial breaks of the walking dead and basically made tv sat up took notice and said there's money to be made in horror let's do it and right. the walking dead was fabulously gory so that kind of what's the phrase i want set the bar i suppose mm. so every horror that came after it had to do better had to do more had to go that bit further and it did if you look at the last 10 years of tv horror it's just got more and more gory and there you go potted history <laughs> well that's <laughs> thank fantastic. you thank you Stella. um but that did touch on something that um i've always wondered about which is so so was amc a cable channel did yes. you say so did did cable channels have different standards for you know how violent they could be and things like that is it because well, what's the reason for that sorry well basically so network tv free to air network is entirely funded by advertisers so it's they've got two methods of regulation there's market regulation so basically if the advertisers say look that shows a bit much we're not going to advertise inside of that. They can pull their funding and then the show might get axed. And that happened with um, uh, the American version of Skins. Um, that right. got axed because um, uh, the Parents Television Council, who are a bunch of right-wing nutters, um, <laughs> right, right-wing nutters against fun, they said it's uh, too pornographic. Um, the advertisers pulled their money. So that's market regulation. And then network TV is also regulated by the FCC, which is the Federal Communications Commission. And that's basically like Ofcom here. So they're regulated very, very heavily on network. On basic cable, the FCC does not regulate them. So they have, again, market regulation because they still have adverts, but they also have their own broadcasting standards and practice department. It's basically up to them how far they will go. Right. If you move up a level again to HBO, Showtime, Stars, Cinemax, those channels that you pay for entirely, they have no adverts, so no market regulation, and they're only funded by the subscribers. So that's why HBO, for instance, was able to do these very, very high quality, high violence, high swearing, high drug use, high sex scene dramas mm. years before everybody else, because they the only people they had to, you know... Um, Mollify. Uh, uh, yeah, mollify or appease with their subscribers, and their subscribers wanted that kind of content. So you've got these differing levels of who who you have to answer to. So AMC, they have to answer to um, basically themselves and the advertisers. But the advertisers with The Walking Dead saw that they the demographic was very, very valuable. So basically people um, 25 to 34, maybe even a bit older, with disposable income, who can spend money on the products that they want to sell you through their adverts. So the horror audience is essentially very, very valuable to mm. the advertisers. And the advertisers, they'll kind of let that slide a little bit now if, if something's so violent. But The Walking Dead has done some extra violent things later on in series that we can talk about later where they did get in trouble and they did have to um, do apologise for. Sure. OK, well, that's a very comprehensive... Um, sketch of mm. <laughs> the american tv landscape leading up yeah. to the start of the walking dead um 
so that's great um and i suppose the only mystery there that i do find intriguing is that you know like you say there are things like the twilight zone and and various yeah. other examples of kind of genre tv that did poke through the veil over the years and i wonder what allowed that to happen um I mean, I know that, for instance, Universal uh, in the 70s made a lot of TV movies, one every mm. every week. And, you know, and they'd be in various genres. And and so some of those would be horrible. They'd be very sanitized horror. They'd have no yeah. on-screen violence or, or or swearing or anything like that. Mm. But um, but so there was but there was still some kind of recognition that there was a certain amount of a taste for that stuff yeah but yeah I, I wonder sanitized. if go on go on I, I was wondering if it's you know to do with the way in which kind of horror particularly in those in that context um operates very much uh, around you know what we call the off-screen space yes which is cheap yeah <laughs> you know that right. kind of the yeah, yeah the you mean they don't have to show things so therefore no. yeah. Yeah. It's all suggestive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And of course, I think the, one of the things that I found um, uh, kind of recently through some um, independent research is that um, that there's, you know, with radio drama, obviously a little bit earlier than the Twilight Zone, but that kind of horror and sci-fi were also really yeah. kind of um, uh, popular genres there as well because, you know, it's about that, con you know, conjuring in the mind of the audience mm. Um, the horror rather than showing it on screen. So, I mean, it seems to be, as you know, that cinema has always been this, you know, kind of, you know, perceived to be a high budget um, media form, whereas television is much more low budget. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that shows, whilst not necessarily being kind of seen as being kind of critically worthy um, mm. from the horror genre, you know, kind of, um, at least kind of early on were... Um, you know, popular with audiences and, you know, and cheap to make. So therefore, you know, kind of an easy option. Yeah. I think producers. one of the issues that they had with horror, you know, even if it is fair, like say sanitized is, is a really good way of describing it. And sort of the, the suggestive horror is kind of where to put it in the schedule. Yeah. So if you've got, you know, thinking of the idea of like broadcast flow, like where, where does it go? And if you've got, um, on a Thursday night on NBC, you've got your latest police procedural on, and then that goes head to head with ABC's new sitcom. Uh, where where does the horror fit into the schedule? It doesn't doesn't sit nicely anywhere. Yeah. And these older, more suggestive horror shows, they were kind of like you say slated a bit as not being as authentic enough as as cinema horror. Um, and Stephen King in particular was particularly bad for it so he would let lots of his works be adapted for television for network television and then complain that it wasn't horrifying enough and in his book called dance macabre there's a whole chapter on tv horror in general and basically he just doesn't like tv as a medium but he's really really bitter about it and it's like but you gave them the your network you said they could do it like and you've been paid for it start your bloody engine yeah but so he his but he's basically saying the point, you know, if you can't see the monster, what's the point? But since then, there's been other writers. So the um, Stacey Abbott, uh, yeah, Stacey Abbott, excuse me, and Lord, Lorna Jowett, their book called TV Horror, incidentally, um, they make a wonderful argument for how in those conditions of not being able to show stuff, the conditions of having a smaller budget, the conditions of not knowing where in the schedule your show's going to go. Actually, these older TV shows, t um, Night Gallery, Twilight Zone, 
even you know the x-files and stuff they were so creative with what they did to actually still be quite scary you know remember watching oh, yeah. some of those older stuff in your kid like do you remember um tales from the unexpected roald dahl stuff yeah, that yeah. was on yeah. uk oh, yeah. tv yeah. some of those were terrifying but they didn't show anything no and there was a there was a twilight zone that i watched when i was a kid and it still bothers me now and it was I don't quite remember the full story, but essentially a woman goes a bit mad and she's got loads of mannequins in her house and she's talking to them like they're real. And then I think they, I think she turns into a mannequin at the end and that's it. And it was just, it, it, you know, it really bothered me because they did, they did a lot with very little, you know, so there's a lot to be said for, for the creativity of the older horror stuff before we got to 2010 and everyone's like, right, yep, yeah, go for it, do what you want. Well, no, there, there is, um, and I think a really good illustration of that is if you if you look at the Twilight Zone movie, which was made in the early 80s, and has, yes. you know, it is a movie, so it, it can be more violent and things, but it's, yeah. it's, it's essentially a remake of several episodes of the series. And if you right. compare the original episodes with the versions for the remake, they're usually just as good or better. Mm. Um, you know, because, and I think it's because of the inventiveness that the, the directors and the writers had to display yeah. um, to get around the constraints. Um, I think another, um, just one more thing to add yeah. with the, you know, the, prob- the problem, perceived problem of putting horror on TV is if you do have an advert break in it, I can't remember who wrote it, but I think it was Gregory Waller wrote about it. He was saying one of the issues is if you're building a nice horror tent story and, you know, the audience is on the edge of the seat and waiting to see what had to happen, and then that's broken by a very sort of bright and cheery commercial for washing powder, sort of it, it disrupts the, the horror somewhat. So I think yeah. that's kind of seen as problematic as well because you, you keep breaking it rather than, you know, holding that tension across the half hour or hour long slot that you have. But, you know, now, I guess now, better's not the right word. More, there's been a, more development in writing narratives where people are prepared to come back after the commercial break or you're watching horror series on, on Netflix where there isn't one and, and now that's not a problem so much anymore. And I think, like, American TV writers have been schooled for generations now in, in how to write kind of cliffhanger little narratives where sure. every now and mm. then there's a dramatic point where the, the audience will stick around despite <clears throat> the commercial yeah. break. Yeah. So yeah. and that obviously affects some of the series we're going to be talking about, like the AMC one. Um mm. but also, as you say, is solved in the HBO stroke Netflix model of mm. um advert free viewing. Okay. So mm. that's a, a fascinating area for development um you know that just thinking about how tv has changed over all this time um yeah. kirsty is there anything else you'd like to feed in it's just reflecting really on the kind of um the shows that kind of grabbed me um and scared me when i was growing up and again you know for kind of people of our generation you know the television was the main kind of you know visual medium and and films were somewhat you know kind of special weren't they um in terms of you know you had your vhs or you had to you know kind of look at what was on the television schedules about what film was on when um and you know and i think whilst we're kind of focusing on um american television obviously um i think you know for a lot of people like us doctor who um yeah, you know that, and that that kind of the sure. way in which we view um, 
or with Doctor Who, how people talk about having to watch from behind their sofas or behind mm-hmm. cushions, um, which kind of demonstrates, at least for in British culture, how um, accessible um, and mainstream horror was even though it was kind of, you know, horror via sci-fi, via sort of fantastic. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, um, yeah. and then I was thinking about um, a, 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 one of my very favourite kind of shows, which I think, I'm not sure if it predates Buffy. When did Buffy start? Buffy started in 96. 96, yeah. okay, so it does, just. Um, American Gothic? Oh, yes. yeah. That was I was nice. thinking about that a lot while watching American yeah. Horror yeah. Story because of Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson, Absolutely, yeah. yeah, I'm so, yeah I love was, her. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. Fantastic. She's so good. But I think that was my first um, uh, experience of watching something I, f- I could strongly identify as being horror on television. Obviously, been scared by episodes of The X-Files, but that was very much framed as science fiction yeah. still. Um, whereas Morrick and Gothic was, you know, kind of very focused on that sense of, um, mm. you know, battles between good and evil and, you know, kind yeah. of allusions towards, you know, um, the devil and God and whatever. Yeah. Um, but done really effectively in a, in a way that I'd felt I hadn't seen on television at that point. But obviously I was... 15 when I saw it so. <laughs> so you shouldn't have been watching it should you well you know I was allowed so I think that's yeah. really interesting what you're saying about the horror being hidden inside something else mm. I think that's ha- that's happened in various yeah. other examples I think Dan you mentioned possibly in an email exchange um, yeah. Silent Witness in the UK yes very, oh, no, ca- oh, Casualty gory. Casualty, yeah. yeah, like the opening bit, you know, yeah. or opening sequences of were just, yeah, horrific. Which I don't think they do anymore. Not do they not? I, I, well, I, I haven't watched it regularly, but there definitely seemed to be a thing when we were younger mm. that it would be there'd be an injury every week, there'd be a horrible yeah. accident. Whereas now, you know, they have ongoing storylines about you know people with terminal illnesses or, or or there's a serial killer one of the doctors is a serial killer or something like that really but, really you know, where, where have i been if that's been going on <laughs> that happened in holby city and it was paul mcgann <laughs> yeah. so uh yeah so the, the the kind of tone of it is different now and you know more serialized mm. as well which i guess is part of the wider shift that we'll yeah, be talking progress, about yeah but yeah i i get the sense that um Horror never had a, a great um, respectability on TV in this country. Mm. Um, and the nearest thing that you get to kind of respectable horror that, that wasn't really anything else was the, the M.R. James adaptations that the BBC used to make in the 70s. Um, yeah. But at the same time, even those, there's, there's a slight difference between a ghost story and a horror story you know if i yeah uh, i'm talking to an audience of people who i think might be a bit suspicious of horror stuff i'll say i like ghost stories (laughs) because it (laughs) it seems just a little bit more respectable um everything else i think was um possibly an example of writers and directors feeling constrained by those kind of limits that that we're talking about that were imposed on them they tried to push it from within whatever genre they were in. So, you know, you'd have a very sinister crime drama, like Taggart mm. is very <laughs> weird and dark. Um, yeah. Well, it was. And, um, was the other one, Cracker? That was good as well. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy yeah. McGovern's Cracker, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and therefore, I do think you'd kind of get horror cropping up. And like you say, it mm. would be in sci-fi to an extent. 
uh, in Who and um, you know it was all, it, that was happening in America because a lot of Star Trek episodes are also quite horrific. Um, yeah. And but you it, get but little it, bits popping up in soaps as well because you, you yeah. think of. Do you remember in um, Brookside when she stabbed her husband? She's a domestic violence victim and she stabbed her husband and buried him under the patio. Yeah, 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 yeah. Edgar yeah. Allan Poe's Telltale Heart. Um, oh yeah. That was, that was quite horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a lot later, but you know they did the whole storyline in Coronation Street about Richard Hillman, which was which included the line, "You're Norman Bates with a briefcase." Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was in about 2000. That was while we were at university that that was happening. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think it was always kind of pushing through, but mm. um, there was never a, a kind of mainstream acceptance of it. I mean, I, I think it's kind of important that, or, or, or rather it's suggestive that you know, there's a great book about British horror films called English Gothic by Jonathan Rigby, and when he mm. f- published his first edition in the year 2000, uh, it didn't have anything about TV. But by right. the time he did his third edition, I think in 2005, there was a whole afterword or a whole section at the end that was about TV horror, and it kind mm. of had. Uh, there was an afterword by the writer D- David Peary who made a point that you know. TV has been frightening us for decades, but it, but it yeah. never gets talked about, never really gets thought about. And a lot mm. of the most frightening stuff um, were the things that had no budget. There'd be dramas with two people in a room, and the, yeah. and somehow they'd make it really frightening. But mm. the people who actually run TV don't seem very um, receptive to that. They don't really really want to remember that. And it's like Ghost Watch, you know, as we discussed the other yeah. week. That that happened and had such a huge impact, but the impact of it was that it was immediately buried. Um, yes. You know, they, <laughs> yeah, they didn't... Never speak of it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, uh, you'd like to think these days, hopefully, they, they grab Stephen Volk and Leslie Manning and say, can you make us another one of those last week, please? Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but instead, you know... Those guys never got together. Well, I, I, th- I think there might have been some minor projects they worked on, but, you know, there was nothing like that again ever, and the show was never repeated. Mm. Um, and I think that would be different now. Um, I suppose here's the point where I, I do my bit of name-dropping, although it is a, a name that I've already dropped. I spoke to Stephen Volk once at a screening, and I, I actually... <laughs> Thank you. That was the name dropping. Yeah, yeah. No, boom. And, um, uh, yeah. and I did say to him, you know, why is it that TV um, doesn't do more horror when it's got, it actually has a great success track record if mm. you look into it. And, and a lot of TV horror examples are kind of more frightening than movies are. Mm. And he, he basically told me that Essentially, it's a question of permission. When you write a horror movie script for the cinema screen, you can trust that the audience have paid for their tickets to see specifically yeah. that movie, and therefore That's they're true. giving you permission to frighten them or disturb them. Yeah. Whereas on TV, you kind of have you can't trust that, and the commissioners don't trust that. So if they do yeah. try horror, they have to either disguise it as something else, or you kind of trick the audience into going 
into a horror story by having mm. it start out like something else, you know. Yeah, yeah. of course, of course that's that not... It's a question of where you put it then, isn't it? So maybe if Ghost Watch, maybe if they'd put it on at 10pm rather than 9pm, it mightn't have been as bad. I say bad, you know what I mean? As well, yeah, problematic. True. Yeah, well, because they certainly would have lost the the problem of the child audience yeah, accidentally <laughs> catching it. Yeah. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Kirst, you were going to say something. Yeah, no, I was going to say, of course, that, that, that kind of, that distinction has largely now disappeared just because of the way in which TV consumption has changed. It's, it's that, you know, the parental controls you can put in on Netflix or any any television, really, um, in order to ensure that um, your children aren't accessing um you know kind of um, particular types of content um yeah. but then but you know that there is with that whole on-demand thing there's just a much a, a greater sense of i am giving you permission because i am you know turning or i'm downloading and i'm or i'm streaming and yeah i'm choosing mm-hmm. to watch this and and equally you know that we have much greater power to go you know as individuals consuming you know bits of media to go yeah. no i don't like this and turn it off and you yeah. know and find something else so yeah you know and netflix you know, they they thrive on that yeah, yeah. illusion of of choice. It's yeah. all up to you. We've got it all here for you, and it's all yeah, up yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. That's their yeah. that's their whole shtick, yeah. isn't it? Really. Yeah. Some, something else occurred to me as well, which I think it sort of plugs into um, uh, Stella's kind of discussion of the kind of overview of the kind of American um, development of American television is that just the kind of concept of American television um, in, you know, kind of starts in the 2000s as being kind of quality mm-hmm. of the, gold, the golden age the of golden American. Age. Yeah. Which, you know, is the kind of the development of HBO and, you know, more uh, serialized is yeah. that right, right term so yeah. you know like longer narrative arcs whereas yeah. you know the kind of the trend had, had all the you know mainstream um the mainstream broadcasters um had been doing kind of very episodic things yeah. like law and order you know yeah. you watch a single episode and it's you know it's kind of largely done the narrative yeah. is largely over in in that particular you know 45 mm. minutes um whereas obviously things like deadwood and the wire oh, yeah <laughs> we're doing much you know kind of bigger arcs yeah and of course i think that prestige then ends up with you know viewing figures and yeah. critical you know um critical success which leads to you know more investment in those types of you know yeah. things and it seems to me that horror in particular seems to do better along that serialized line because you yeah. can you know build the tension for longer um rather than you know kind of that sense of it all must be wrapped up in 45 minutes yeah because i think certainly the walking dead it's while it um so when it landed in 2010 it was something new to television first yeah. off it was a horror yeah. serial that wasn't on hbo but had an enormous budget and then second of all, it was zombies and no one was putting zombies on television because zombies, um, what's he called? Let me look at that book behind me. I can't remember his name. Russell, Russell, someone or other. Sorry, Russell, I can't remember your second <laughs> name. Um, he said that zombies are the great unwashed of cinema. You know, they're like monsters that people are really interested in. But there, then there was the zombie resurgence. And by 2010, the zombie resurgence was kind of trickling away in cinema. We'd all had enough of zombies by then. So it was like, you know, why are you putting this on television? What are you doing? So it was something new. So while it appeared to be this something new and this bold leap for AMC, it actually fulfills a lot of very old 
or traditional TV logics. So in the first half, it gets, like you said, the demographics, the viewing figures, the advertiser revenue. And then it does have the long form narrative that was developed throughout the 2000s. But it also still does, even now in, in season, where are we, 10 has just finished. Um, it still does a monster of the week. So despite having these huge, long, sprawling, sprawling rather, narratives that go on for a decade, it still deals with the particular zombie of the week. There'll be some little zombie showdown scrap fracas that they use for, for, for two, two reasons. So the first reason is because it's still at the end of the day, even though 10 years later, it's still a zombie show. So we've got to have some zombies in it. But also it shows off how technically skilled the special effects departments are. And they use their zombie technical excellence, I've called it in my book. And they use that as promotional material. Say, look, look how good this is. It looks fantastic. And every week there'll be excuse me, there'll be a zombie who was maybe um, been stuck under a pile of sand for three years, so that one looks and behaves a certain way. Or there'll be a zombie that's become kind of part of a tree and jumps out of a tree, or there's, there'll be waterlogged zombies. or you know. And so every week there'll, be, there'll still be a monster of the week to deal with. So it, that's still a very, very old horror sort of rhythm, narrative rhythm to do. Yeah. So say, like, you know, Twilight Zone, Night Galleries, they were monster of the week, or even L.A. Law or... Law well, and I Order. Think... They had a crime of the week, so they're still doing that quite old structure, despite being the oh we're something new, we're doing zombies on TV. Look at us! Like, oh, actually, you're not doing anything that much different. And now it's quite essentially it's a soap opera with zombies now. I could be wrong, but I think the monster of the week tradition was actually started by the Outer Limits uh, really? on American TV in in the sixties, and they used to you know call what? I've it. Never watched any of them. Oh, um, I have, I've got the box set of the second season and there's some really good stuff in there and some not so good stuff. Uh, (laughs) But, I mean, for instance, there's the episode which uh, James Cameron was sued for ripping off when he made The Terminator. And if you watch, like, the first two minutes of it, you just go, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's The Terminator. (laughs) But it's, like, it's so precise. But, um... But no, uh, yeah, the Outer Limits always had some kind of monster, and that apparently, mm. I guess the, fra- the the you know the the phrase "monster of the week" had not really um, been coined yet, so they used to call it mm. the bear. What's this week's bear? Uh, and the, the, there'd always be a different creature. There'd be a monster under the bed yeah. or, or whatever. Um, mm. So. Yeah, so and, and that's an example, as we were saying earlier, of like horror kind of hiding within another mm. genre because I, even though The Outer Limits was science fiction um, if it has a monster in it to me to some extent it's horror I, you yeah. know even if it's aimed at children or whatever um, a monster is by nature it's a horrific um, creature um, that has yeah. the effect of frightening you so therefore I think you know The Outer Limits I think, to, to, uh, you know, it was kind of known for that to the extent that the audience would have been disappointed if there wasn't a monster. So, mm-hmm. therefore, you know, whereas The Twilight Zone could get away with not doing that. You know, it could just have some weird episode or some <laughs> comedy episode, but it didn't have to have a monster in it. The outer right. limits kind of did. But, yeah, and yeah. you're right to link that to, you know, the criminal of the week in a crime show. Yeah. Um, or whatever, or you know, special guest patient of the week in Casualty, <laughs> or whatever. To go back to that one, um, and also just, 
specifically on The Walking Dead, you know, it has to be said that it's really impressive that they do create, you know, a variety of every week pretty much there's a a new kind of zombie makeup effect yeah. done. Um that yeah. I, I I'd really wouldn't blame them as a producer if they were using the same extras playing zombies with the same makeups on <laughs> over again. Because who's going to notice at the end of the day, you know, week to week, they could probably get away with doing the same ones over and over again, but they don't really. It's really quite impressive. They don't because they've got the money to not do. They've got the money to develop it and keep making, you know, as many different zombies as Greg Nicotero can pull out of his, out of his brain. I mean, the <laughs> zombies have become essentially kind of pretty much part of the mise-en-scene now, I think, of, of The Walking Dead. It is... The zombies aren't the main threat anymore and they stop being the main threat probably ooh, end of season two. Yeah. Maybe well, they stopped being the main threat. I, I've watched up to the end of season five and I'd say that yeah. the zombies are just kind of the wallpaper now, really. Yeah, it's just the scene. Sometimes and they just literally. have them into Zombie yeah. wallpaper, yeah. brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> I'd have so, that in my house. Um, but, so yeah, let's... They, they have to keep it up. <laughs> Go on. Shall we talk about The Walking Dead specifically uh, in as much yeah. detail as we'd like then? So um, I, I didn't discover the show until a few years later. Were you around and watching when it was new, Stella? I started it um, about halfway through season two. So, yeah, 2011 was when I started watching it. I didn't catch it right at the start. Um, I had not long since become a mum, so I don't think I knew what was going on anywhere at that <laughs> point. Um so yeah, yeah, I started watching it from about halfway through season two and I watched a couple of episodes and then decided to stop and I'd just go back and get the DVD from the, you know, season one and watch it properly. And I watched season one, two, three, four and five all on DVD. So I smashed through them as quickly as I possibly could. And I thought, this is great, really fast paced, love it. And then I started watching it from season six onwards, watching it week to week. And I was like, oh, was it always this slow? Or was I just right. smashing through it on DVD? So I think it is... It is slower than I originally thought it were, unless it's slowed down in recent years. I can't, I can't really tell because, like I say, I w I've watched half of it in one viewing habit and the, the other half week to week. Um, so yeah, so, but you're late to it, aren't you, Dan? You've only just started watching it. Yes, relatively. and I, I think you've brought up something really interesting there, which is the difference in the pleasure of experiencing a show, binge watching it versus watching yeah. it week to week. Um, so I've always binge watched The Walking Dead um, because I'm so late. I can afford to do that. There's a million yeah. episodes that I've not seen. <laughs> um, I think I should probably just kind of sketch in my TV tastes because they'll inform the way I look at this and the way I look at the kind of recent TV horror is that I am slightly suspicious of TV horror because to me... I love long-form television drama. I, my favourite thing in the world is um, the 1985 BBC miniseries Edge of Darkness, which is six hours long, mm -hmm. and it's a kind of bizarre sort of science fiction conspiracy thriller, um, and it's really um, Byzantine and and moving and deep, and you care you you care so much about the characters, and I kind of. Having seen that and seen a few other similar length kind of shows, I came to think this, these are like movies, but actually even better because they're just a bit longer 
um, you know, they're twice as long or maybe three times as long and, and they have that much more depth and, and therefore that much more emotional investment. The disappointment with them that can happen is that you care so much about the story and about the characters in it that at the end, um, mm. the ending is not satisfying. Yeah. Um, it, just, um, it, it can't live up to how much you've become invested, which is a problem that films don't face, really. Um, mm. But with horror, I'd always kind of thought, but surely horror is kind of more effective in short bursts because because fear is a more kind of primal emotion. Um, mm. And therefore, I was never hugely attracted to TV, long-form TV horror. Um, like I said, you know, the British TV tradition of horror was uh, a lot of the time in things like the one-off ghost story. You yeah. know, it was done in 50 minutes kind of thing and, and the horror anthology and things like that. Um, so that's where it came from when looking at the, at the Walking Dead. But also, the thing about it which drew me to it was that I love zombie movies and I love yeah. the George A. Romero ones particularly. And mm-hmm. um, I thought that that format that George A. Romero pi- uh, pioneered in Night of the Living Dead could be extended because basically it's suspense and you can draw out suspense yeah. in a way that you can't draw out so much shock or terror. If you know, mm-hmm. um, But I thought, okay, so this... Walking Dead could be basically Night of the Living Dead, but you know, six to ten hours long or even longer. <laughs> longer. Um, yeah. And as I started watching it, I was really pleased to discover, yeah, that's basically what it is. Um, yeah. And also, I came to it with the knowledge of Frank Darabont's involvement, and I love his movie The Mist, yeah. which is only one for of the season best. one, though. Yes, I know, and and you maybe can explain a bit more about that. I know something about <laughs> why he left, but but I don't know that I know the truth. But nobody so knows the truth. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, well, it's uh, did he walk? Was he sacked? Nobody really knows. <laughs> well, he still gets a credit on it after that, so uh, hopefully yeah. that he's still getting some money. So you know, yeah. good for mm-hmm. him. I, what I do think is that the first episode of The Walking Dead, which is a ninety-minute or a two-hour pilot, which he directs and writes. It's yep. a stunning film. It's um, great, isn't it? It's so powerful. But but because uh, of having the option of binging it, I just w- went straight to episode two and three and four. Basically, the, mm. the whole of the first series is a long movie. Yeah, elongated it, zombie it, movie. And it leaves you with, um, you know, not... A, the thing is, it can never have a satisfying traditional kind of return to equilibrium ending. But that's because mm-hmm. in the apocalypse genre, there never can be that ending, really. If, if the start of your story is the world ends, what's going to happen at your end of your story? It's not, not going to happen. The world's not going to come back. <laughs> unless it's the movie of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in which case the, <laughs> the, the world does come back. But... um you know, so I so I have so I had that inbuilt knowledge that you know I wasn't going to get a close a closed ending to it, but I was fine yeah. with that because again the suspense kind of carried forward and 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 I enjoyed it on that level. Um, Kirsty, what was your experience of early Walking Dead? 
Well, I um, unlike you two, I watched it live. I remember it coming and that sense of, oh, this is something exciting, something different. And the kind of buzz that was around it, again, partly because yeah. of um, Darabont and um, partly, um, I think, because of um, Kirkman and... Um, Gaylan Hurd, the producer. Yeah. Um, yes, and, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Aliens, yeah, I mean, there's yes. a, a local... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a, a local connection as well for where I am, which is um, uh, kind of near Shrewsbury, um, because Charlie Adlard um, lives here um, and he's well known in the town as being one of our, oh. you know, kind of most... Uh, um, yeah, kind of, kind of successful sons. Um, so there was, <laughs> oh, I think, there was a kind of you know a, a local novelty. Um, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm speaking to you now from a room that contains a Charlie Adlard original. I've just to gloat Ooh. slightly. Wow. Um, right. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Um, Yes, yeah, so I, I kind of remember it coming and I remember um, being quite excited about it. I'm not, I've got to be honest, I'm not a fan of the zombie genre at all. It's not my type of horror. My husband, however, it's his absolute favourite and he has a zombie plan and everything. Um, so he was, <laughs> right. you know, there was no way that he he wasn't going to watch it. And then it was just, I think, was it 2010, did you say, Stella? Yeah. So it's that just that kind of era before everybody gets Netflix and, yeah. you know, kind of that the, sort of streaming is a big thing. Um, so, yeah, so we watched it live and we watched it kind of week to week. And I remember kind of going, oh, actually, no, this is this is kind of exciting. Um, it felt, I forgot to be honest, but I'm not sure where the kind of linearity of like the original source material is. Like the first episode, the setup felt a bit 28 days later. Oh, yeah. Very definitely. much so. Um, yeah. Waking yeah. up in the coma from the. Yeah, yeah. Like, from I was kind of like, oh, okay. But, the, you know, again, it was it's because of that, um, you know, this explosion of what a, you know, kind of a big budget could do on television, mm. of being quite impressed with the scope of it and the makeup and the, you mm. know, visual effects and all that kind of stuff that I was quite sort of drawn into it, even mm. though it wasn't my, my favourite genre. Um, so, yeah, and I'm quite invoy. Invo- um, Sorry, excuse me. I quite enjoyed the first couple of seasons. And then um, I think there was... I basically kind of didn't make it any further, I think, than season three, um, partly for kind of parental issues. I think there were, chil- <laughs> there were children in the narrative and, kids, and yeah. yeah under threat. And I had to, you know, being the mother of a small child at the time, yeah. just went, no, nah. I can't do that. <laughs> um, and I haven't kind of gone back to it. But, you know, it's really... You know, being kind of you know culturally aware, it's and and having you know my husband uh, around, it's it's been a sort of uh, omnipresent. Even though I've not watched yeah. it, and I've been aware of what's been going on in the show, even though I've not watched it. So so friends stuck with it. Thing. Yeah, yeah I, I like the fact that both of you have this um, kind of dichotomy with your husbands. That, yeah, yeah. You know, could tell you what's going on in The Walking Dead, but he doesn't watch it. But he's, you know, right. it just sort of hap- happens around him. Yeah. But he, he he does know about certain things. You know, he might come downstairs because I'm crying because it's on. Yeah. I'm watching it, or you know, and he'd be like, "Oh, hello, he's he's, he's dead, is he?" Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's it's interesting as well because I've got a few um, friends sort of in the fan studies community. Yes. Um, so you know, kind of run a few of them. Um, so there's a shout out to Bethan, um, who does. Uh, he's um, you know, big Walking Dead fan. And she's been to. Um, is it Walker's? Walker's Walker Stalker. Walker, yeah. That's Regu- what I want for regularly. all my friends who are listening. That's yeah. what I want for my 40th yeah. birthday present. Yes, <laughs> tickets for that. Yes, yes. good, good. good. Um, <laughs> and she also did. She also did uh, one of the tours. 
in the states as well yeah. where you go to yeah oh i'd love to uh, yeah so um yeah so i'm kind of aware that cool. you know there's a big fan community yeah, around it definitely. and a lot of you know which which is when you were talking before about the kind of you know the the monster of the week and the kind of the emphasis placed on the makeup i was mm. just thinking about yeah th- that partly comes from it doesn't that sense that um producers know that the lot of the kind of production details will be sort of out ahead of the episodes airing yeah. um and you know so they kind of that and viewers will view with a kind of um a kind of multi-dimensional you know uh, media experience in terms yeah. of social media interaction mm. seeing the trailers and you know all of that kind of stuff which makes those characters or those you know kind of monsters slightly more meaningful within the world of the text sure. yeah and horror fans love knowing the details of how yeah. stuff's made anyway you know you've got magazines like fangoria and stuff that yeah. you know, show detail how special effects are done but when you mentioned um like fan studies and the fan activity around the walking dead amc exploits that massively so yeah. straight after the walking dead you've got talking dead which is where they discuss yeah. the episodes that's just been on and obviously i watch that like the sad case that i am but right. it is just absolute direct exploitation yeah. of fan practice and talking dead gets doesn't get quite get, get the figures as the walking dead gets but it gets enough yeah and you know they've still got adverts inside it's still an hour-long show and that costs them next to nothing to make because they're just people in a studio talking about what's just been on so the you know amc are are really on the button with utilizing existing fan practice which is you know to go online and chatter after the episode to talk about what you've just seen and to speculate about what might happen next week and amc uses that to its advantage um one of the things that I'd thought of before was we were talking about the development of characters and how you kind of latch onto them a little bit in The Walking Dead that's where they've come a cropper a few mm. times a number of occasions so they are doing a monster of the week they are doing some sort of gory death a week as well so you know characters come and go with fair regularity um, and one of the most loved characters of The Walking Dead um in season seven is that early enough to talk about who it is uh, the, the, I, I think we can talk about it i know yeah. i've not seen it but i know who it is it was right, it so was a big story a couple of years ago yeah yeah so when glenn Ree gets brutally murdered by um negan and it's in the comics so it you know it was already out there it was a uh, uh, episode not episode issue 100 of the comics glenn gets his head bashed in with the barbed wire covered baseball bat and it's brutal in two dimensions and black and white in the comic Hmm. but on a tv show it was the first episode of season seven the last episode of season six the murder happens because they're all on their knees in a semicircle the murder happens and you don't know who it is and they just showed it from the point of view of the person getting their head bashed in and they had like blood run down the screen and that's how they closed the end of season six everyone's like oh my god we've got to wait however many months to find out it is so season seven starts it opens and it they take an awfully long time to get to the murder they do lots of jumping around in the narrative so it's takes to like the third section so you've got like four sections in the hour it takes to the third section for us to see that the first person to get killed well he kills abraham and everyone goes oh maybe glenn's not going to get it and then daryl does something stupid and he swings around and he, and he bashes glenn's head in now he's previously just bashed abraham's head in and it was brutal and it was full on no cuts showed the lot bashes mm. glenn's head in his eye pops out it's a fantastic piece of practical effect no cgi in it it's really really well executed but 
the press went mad the fans went ballistic they were like everyone took to twitter walking dead it's too much i'm not watching it anymore how could you do this it's like well we all knew it was coming <laughs> and it's a zombie show and it's a horror show and greg nicotero had to hold a press conference the next day to basically explain himself say right. why did you do that and it's and i was like what yeah it was harsh and i i bawled my eyes out and i felt sad for about three days afterwards like glenn's my friend <laughs> but it was just yeah they, they've they've crossed the line i think three times now where they've got in trouble not just from maybe the trade press saying oh, you shouldn't be doing that but by fans going whoa 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 yeah. easy there that that's yeah. a bit strong but i think it's when you've got this really really long character development glenn was in it from the very first episode he gets rick out of the tank you know right yeah, at the yeah. very very start is there for seven seasons is is the only character who still retains any sort of moral fiber seven you know three or four years down the line or however long the timeline's supposed to be mm. and then he gets killed in such a brutal way and all the fans were like oh no what have you done and it was like it's horror so that's where <laughs> you get this um you get this pushback so you've got character development of long-form drama but it's horror so nasty things are going to happen to them yeah it's so inter- I, I wonder it's, it's problematic again sorry Stella I, wa- I wonder on, to, to, to what extent that is connected a little bit to the um, to the institution in that if mm. Walking Dead was HBO then mm. you know particularly in a in a Game of Thrones world yeah sure then <laughs> it's kind of like oh well, it's disappointing and we'll all be angry but we're not get too angry because it's kind yeah. of what we expect from that particular you know um, institution channel whatever yeah. um, whereas AMC being you know, slightly more accessible. Yeah, in not, that middle ground. Yeah, not so much. Mm. Um, but it's, I, yeah, think it's, it's, I think it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it really does speak to the way in which um, viewers uh, often, with that serialised kind of arc and, you know, kind of weekly character development and getting to, you know, kind of really aligning with characters or finding an allegiance with them, yeah. is that you, that it becomes much more of a melodramatic experience as a spectator Definitely. rather than a horror one. Yeah. 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 So we're watching this very visual horror gore happening, in, you know, in in full colour, <laughs> yeah. full eye popping, brain squishing colour. Um, you know, Negan hits him once, and and Glenn t- tries to talk to Maggie, and it's all very very emotional. Like I said, I was bawling like a baby, and yeah, it was it was very melodramatic, and the rest of the episode is just so sad, mm. really really sad. And then the rest of that season was a bit shit. But they pulled it back in season, late season eight, season nine, they pulled it back. But most of seven and eight was pretty dull. So you could probably give them a miss, Dan, if you want. And come I might just jump nine. straight to season nine, to be honest. Season nine's got the Whisperers, which um, is a, the next baddies that um, use zombie skins to put over themselves as like camouflage. Okay. So, that, so that's really good. So our group, as it were, they think... So they're watching these packs of zombies walking by who are whispering to each other and, and our, you know, our good group are, are all going, oh, my God, the zombies can talk. Ah, right, okay. it turns out yeah, it's, it's the whisperers. And then they're an excellent um, sort of new bad guy for them to deal with. And it's a it's a female led um, group of bad guys, as it were. So it's really, really good. Season nine. And I, I think I've heard, correct me if I'm wrong, you might know this, Stella. I think that the showrunner is female now as well, isn't she? She is. Yeah. 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 She definitely so. she she's she was on it doing various other roles for a number of years 
Um, and I think she directed a few times, and then yeah, now she's fully taken over. I can't for the life of me remember her name, which is really insulting. Um, but yeah, the showrunner is now it's, female. It, it's, it's her not name, Gail Ann Hurd. It's not Gail Ann Hurd. No, 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 she's still producing it. She's the, still in the exact producer position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's still doing that, and she um, after Glenn's death. Like it's real. After Glenn passed, Gail <laughs> and Heard did a. Um, she like released an official statement and stuff. It was mad. It was just mad, 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 mad. Well, I think we've learned though. Um, over the course of this, not this particular episode, but the, the whole series, is that um, uh, press conferences <laughs> normally mean <laughs> that uh, that um, horror makers have done their jobs. Yeah. yeah. Well, Every, that's everyone, true. Everyone's yeah. horrified. <laughs> At yes. the end of the day, you have to offend people to a certain extent. You can't really make non-offensive horror. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's a keynote of the era we're in of TV horror, I guess. Mm. I'd just like to say mm-hmm. a few things to pick up on some, uh, stuff that both of you just said, if that's okay, over the last few minutes, because yeah. I was just waiting for a yeah. point. Um, uh, here's a random one. So you were talking about the Talking Dead, Stella. Yes. Um... So was I? I mean, lots of shows have that now. You know, lots of yeah. American shows have the the follow-on talking mm. show. I like to think of them as the children of Big Brother's Little Brother, which <laughs> Russell Brand yeah. used to present in like two thousand and nine. Oh, I used to love that. Um, <laughs> so was the the Walking Dead one the, like the first of this trend, or had there already been all the shows that did that before the? Walking I'm going to go out on a limb and say to- Talking Dead did it first because. Right. After Talking Dead did it, because it did it from season two. Right. Um, so that would be 2011, crossing over into early 2012. And then after they did it, they started doing it after Breaking Bad as well. Which was called Talking um, Bad. Talking Bad, yeah, I believe. Yeah. Someone yeah. up all night thinking of that one. <laughs> um, yeah, right. so it okay. appears to be a thing. And again, another trend that The Walking Dead has set off that, you know, yeah, yeah. Lad, you can make some more money out of this. And, yeah, I mean, you know, it makes complete sense. It really does, you know. Um, yeah. And I was also thinking about, you know, I mentioned how, um, we, Stella, with with you mentioning how maybe you, you've sensed that the show could actually be seen as boring once you started watching it week to week. Having yeah. never done that myself, um, I suspect, I'm not sure how I'd react with it like a weekly serial because there is the frustration of... Mm-hmm. You know, turning up each week and the story not progressing maybe as much as you'd hope. Um, yeah. Or if and, they go off and tell another offshoot story and they don't come, they don't circle back for a couple of weeks. And yeah, yeah. A bit frustrating. Um, I mean, Kirsty, you said you did watch it week to week. That was on Channel Five, if I remember correctly, when yeah. it started in the um, UK. Yeah. Did you find yeah. that it worked as a serial? Um, yeah, absolutely. I I don't remember kind of feeling like it. It, it dragged in any way um but i think the, the experience has changed though hasn't it so i i think if i the, the shows that i now have to wait week to week for i find it frustrating that i have to wait <laughs> week to week for because i'm now just much more conditioned to have all episodes available at once so yeah. i can binge it like so spoiled a bit isn't yeah it? exactly so um yeah, so I, I was just, you know, I was just much more used to having to do that in 2010, 2011 than mm. I am almost 10 years later. Mm. So, or 10 years. And yeah. The but viewing I, habits have changed so much. Yeah, massively. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'll have more to say about that next week when we come to talk yeah. about American Horror Story because Yay. I think I, I, my feeling is that um, 
you know, serialisation is fine. I mean, you know, we've already mentioned Doctor Who. I'm a Doctor Who fan. I'm kind of used to that. You get a bit each week. Um, but I think those kind of programmes uh, tend to be very plot-driven. Mm. Um, whereas, to me, the way I see horror is not so much plot-driven. Um, it's kind of sensation-driven, and therefore would I kind of find it frustrating mm. kind of passed out week to week. And The Walking Dead, again, I, I find that an, exa- uh, an exception to that because really it's a drama. Yes, it's in the horror genre, but um, you've talked about how it's kind of character-led and yeah. and how the zombies become kind of part of the background. And I think, you know, mm. certainly as far as I've watched, which is to the end of Series 5, you know, by the time of that series... I, I like the continuity of this, by the way. The, the zombies become more and more rotted over the course oh, of the yeah. series so that they're really easy to kill a few years yeah. in. Like, So there's a scene in an episode <laughs> in Series 5 where they kill a load of zombies with a hose pipe, i.e. Oh, sh- yeah. shooting oh, water yeah. at them. Um, Is that Abraham on top of the fire truck? It's not Abraham. It's um, the guy who pretended to be a doctor. I can't remember. Uh, Eugene. Oh, Eugene. Eugene. Yeah. Um, Eugene and his mullet. Yeah, he's a great character. He's like the Roy Cropper of of the zombie <laughs> apocalypse. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so you know, um, in a way, uh, I, I think The Walking Dead would still be it would still work as a serial even without the zombies. I talked to you the other week, Stella, or at least I mentioned about the series I like called Survivors, which is yes. basically The Walking Dead with no zombies. Right, and I th- and and therefore you'd have trouble positioning it in the horror genre, but I do mm. think it's gripping and terrifying because it's all about the depths that people will sink to sure. in this kind of extremist situation, and that's what The Walking Dead becomes about. Mm-hmm. You know, basically after a while, people pretty much know how to handle the zombie threat. It's yeah. Because okay. if you can't by now, you, you know you're not going to survive yeah. this environment, are you? So everyone who's still there, they're, they're you know, they're all right with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there's like it becomes this progression where, well, certainly in season four or five, the characters move to a new settlement quite frequently and meet some yeah. new people. And <clears throat> every time that happens, you think, are these people going to be mad? What are they going to be like? Is this going to be dangerous? And <laughs> you know, no direct spoilers, but more often than not, they turn out to be bad. Um, are they going to be? Are they going to try and kill you? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's what the drama becomes all about. Oh, are they going to yeah. escape from them? Are they going to get revenge? Who's been left alive? Da da da. Um, and okay. I think it works. Re- I, I really enjoy that. And, and the can, zombies can I... are really just the background to that. Sorry, Kirsty. Can I interject a second? Just um, it's, it's you were saying before about how you felt that the horror is a sensation-driven experience rather than the plot-driven experience, and I think that that that's true. Maybe more of a film than television, because you know, with television, particularly if you are watching on that week-to-week basis, you need the kind of narrative in order to kind of lure you back in, don't you? That kind of you know cliffhangers and mm. and the investment in the characters. So I think on television, horror can absolutely be both narrative or both plot driven and narrative um but what what you the point you were just making there about that kind of sense of um you know they're kind of moving to new settlements is for me and then again having not seen the whole show so you have to forgive me um if this sounds at all like a criticism it's not meant that way um but 
the you know one of the kind of tropes of zombie films is that sense of you know your your survivors finding sanctuary and the sanctuary mm. is safe for a while but not mm. permanently um yeah. and of course that if we've got a long running television drama then it's of that genre then of course they are going to keep you know finding yeah, yeah. themselves in terrible situations with you know initially seeming like they were safe but actually not um <laughs> and that sounds a little you know like within the kind of confines of a horror film 90 minutes two hours then that's not going to get repeated too much but over how many hours of yeah. you know 10 seasons or so yeah. um that's gonna happen you know with regularity isn't it sure well no i yeah. think it's fair enough for you to say that Kirsty. and i will say that you know basically in my viewing of the walking dead i've fallen off um the wagon no that's that's <laughs> the wrong way to say it um but I've, I've i've lost touch with the show on two occasions and one of them was because was kind of early season four having really enjoyed it eventually you just you know, like I say, it was what I wanted. It was basically Night of the Living Dead, but it doesn't end. It just keeps going yeah. on. Yeah. But eventually, I just suddenly realised, oh, but this is never going to end, is it? And, <laughs> you know, at first, it's really thrilling that, you know, characters who you like will be killed, and therefore nothing feels safe. But eventually, mm. you go, oh, wait a minute, nothing is safe. And therefore, mm. because nothing is safe everything is boring <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and therefore I kind of stopped watching it and I didn't pick it up again until watching it for this but I'm really glad I did watch what I saw from mid-season four onwards yeah. um, and you kind of recommended that to me Stella because yeah I certainly season four. I remember you talking about how it falls into kind of discrete stories about individual characters or yeah. pairs of characters doing different things season, in different places it's like a road movie season four yeah each, each character going on their own little sort of journey and, and, and epiphany I, I loved 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 season four yeah and I, I thought that stuff was really great um and in a way, the fact that they go to different settlements and there's, there's like a mm. bad one. At, well, um, you know, it, it kind of works dramatically the way that the, the, the bad, the, there's like a, one that's bad and one that's bad and then one that's kind of complex, but bad things happen, um, even though people are doing their best and, and things like this. It kind of, there's a sense that everything kind of contributes um, until eventually they find a place which might be good. Um, I say might because that's why I stopped watching it <laughs> and I think I'm going to leave it there um, yeah. or, or maybe I'm going to do what you suggested Stella, and jump four seasons because yeah. I've only got one season left with Glenn by the sound of it and if that's all yeah, I got en I don't enjoy, want it enjoy Glenn while you've got him and, yeah. then, and then come in at season nine right <laughs> so I might I might give that a try and just yeah. just to pick up on your point Kirsty as well about you know the zombie genre is not your favourite genre I think I understand where you're coming from it's not my favourite genre either uh, and the z zombies are not my favourite monsters and I think the reason is because there's nothing aesthetically pleasing about a zombie um, <laughs> unlike just a vampire <laughs> or, or whatever you know which yeah. can be kind of quite fascinating but um, I do, because of that, because they're horrible, I do find zombies really frightening. Um, and I, yeah, me too. You know, uh, um, I have regular nightmares about three things. <laughs> this is probably some deep insight. Uh, Nazis, zombies, <laughs> and the aliens from the alien movies. 
Right. <laughs> the really bad ones are where there's Nazis, Nazi zombies and aliens. Or, there or is a Nazi me. zombie movie, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah. Wasn't it advertised yeah. while we were at Grimfest? Um, What's it called? Oh, that, yes, it was uh, uh, Overlord. That's yeah. the fella. Yeah. I've not seen it. There's a few <laughs> films that do Nazi zombies, even yeah. going... Back to there's a 70s film with my favourite Peter Cushing in it called Shockwave, which is about Nazi zombies. I won't Shockwave. go th- go go near any of those, <laughs> for, oh. <laughs> for for what I hope are understandable reasons. But well, may, maybe I should face my fear. But um, but no. So do th- it, Dan. So <laughs> that's why I I don't regard zombie movies as like my favourite genre or my favourite monster. But I. I will go and watch them again and again because I can fairly guarantee that they will frighten me, mm-hmm. and therefore I, I, will, job. I will not be. I'll not have a tepid experience in the cinema um, with with that. Nobody movie. wants that. No. Nobody wants that. <laughs> Certainly not in a horror movie. So. No. You no. Know, you don't want to come out going. <sighs> <laughs> no. And we've done that as well, haven't we? So. Yeah, well, yeah, we've all done that. Um, yeah. So. Uh, Guys, I think well, maybe we're, we're coming close to time. I think I, so. I think possibly we have said a, a lot that we'd like to say about The Walking Dead. Is there anything mm. else you'd like to add, Stella, just before we finish? Because we can go on next week to talk about the impact that The Walking Dead had and the way I think series in the, its wake changed. But go on. I think that's about it. I mean, I think as we talk about other horrors next week i think there'll be bits that the walking dead can, can feed into from this week and I, I, I don't want to sort of complicate it because i think we've covered you know why why it came to be what it, what it did for the industry and how it's used some old and new tv sort of techniques um i think yeah we're ready to talk about everything that followed next week wow. Ooh, to be Hannibal. continued as it were <laughs> what was that Hannibal oh Hannibal I've <laughs> heard of it Kirsty what are you talking about <laughs> no it's, it's a new one on me Hannibal yeah. <laughs> actually it, it came up on uh, in my Netflix queue today actually shows right. you might like so, shows you might like no, so I, I might have a look at that but, um, <laughs> oh yeah uh, just one more thing I'd like to say um, Kirsty you, you kind of dropped off from the Walking Dead kind of Season two ish, because of of the ch- of the child um, yeah. s- focused storylines. Uh, Stella, remind us: is it season two where there's the horrendous childbirth scene? That's in season three. Is it About okay? Halfway through season three, and Laurie has to have a cesarean. Oh, I'm so glad I missed that. Yeah, um, that's, that's so the, the zombies are, are the zombies are piling in the prison, and she goes into labour, which is just what you want when you go into labour and she yeah. um, has to sub- submit to a uh, caesarean by poor Maggie who doesn't know what the hell she's doing and oh. uh, Carl, Carl sees it all as well. It's a really good episode but yeah my, my friend watched it when she was pregnant and she for the second time she'd had a caesarean the first time and she watched that episode and rang me and she was like I've just watched it why have oh. I just watched it? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, you know, just change your birth plan. Don't want a cesarean by a rusty knife and you'll be fine. Oh, oh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I've never had a cesarean. I was born via one, but um, but even so, um, <laughs> I, I found that pretty horrendous viewing. So 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 it was even before that that you got out of there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, any any well small child in danger? <laughs> oh, There's no, an episode it, in... Is it Sophia, episode in season then? five. 
Go on. Oh, yeah, is it the little girl that bothered you, Kirsty? I can't remember. I can't remember. Or was I just, it Carl I, being shot? Oh, I, was, there was something with the farmhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Sophia's Sophia. missing. Yeah. yeah. And Carl's been shot. Yeah, it's like, no, I can't, I can't take all these ch- children in peril. In season yeah. four, there's two two little girls, um, and one of them is uh, clearly a um, psychopath. So that's that's an interesting episode. Have, have you yeah. seen that yet, Dan? Yes, I have, yes. Oh, it's called the, that episode's called The Grove. Oh, anyway, yeah. we'll talk more about TV horror next week. Yeah, we <laughs> we'll talk about All The right, Walking Dead so. for hours. Yeah, <laughs> and um, you know how marvellous it is and what a pleasure it's been. <laughs> um, okay, so we'll wind that up for this week then. Um, hopefully, listeners, yeah. that's as much TV horror talk as, as you can take for, for a week. That'll tide you over nicely, <laughs> and then we'll have even more next week. Um, for now, um, Stella and Kirsty, uh, have we got recommendations for this week? I've got a little one, um, although I must say up front, I'm recommending it without having seen it yet. Um, it's a short horror that has been made entirely via Zoom, um, and you can watch it on Vimeo, and you can rent it for £3.15, and it's called Unsubscribe, and the uh, synopsis I've got here is five YouTubers join an online video call and find themselves haunted and hunted by a mysterious internet troll. It's been written and directed by Christian Nilsson. I don't know who he is, if I'm honest. It might just be unfriended on Zoom. Right. Um, but but because there's no cinema happening at the moment, on June the 10th, it was um, number one at the US box office. Yeah. <laughs> right. so, I saw that um, as well. So I've not, I've not actually watched it yet, but it's £3.15 if you want to rent it via Vimeo. I'm going to have a look at it this weekend. Okay, good call. It sounds interesting. Um, will it be as good as Rob Savage's efforts? Um, probably not. So. <laughs> um, uh, how about you, Kirsty? Um, I don't have a horror strictly um, recommendation. Um, horror strictly, that's a pitch, isn't it? Mm. Um, so, yeah. Um, Love a genre hybrid. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to recommend um, The Vast of Night, which is available on Amazon Prime at the moment. It's uh, an American independent um, sci fi film set in the 1950s um, in uh, New Mexico, so you know where this is heading. Um, okay. Uh, written, directed, produced, and uh, um, uh, edited, yeah, by Andrew Patterson, um, and it's one of those films that's got, that's got quite a lot of critical buzz around it. Lots of mm-hmm. on, on the kind of the things that I follow anyway. Lots of people going, "Oh, this is a you know kind of really inventive, um, low budget sci-fi film," and it and it's yeah, we watched it last weekend. Very pleasing, very nice camera work, um, oh. very yeah, a, a small budget, well spent. I would say. Oh, sounds like something I could probably watch with my husband. We could watch something together. Yes, and it's o- uh-huh. 90 wow. minutes as well. And um, cool. I think that it definitely um, uh, stands a second watch because formally awesome. it's quite interesting. So. Oh, wow, okay. Oh, so what, hmm, what's thanks. the name of that one again, Kirsty? It's called The Vast of Night. The Vast of Night. And it's on Prime, you say? It's on Prime, yeah. Cool. Right, that's... Another reason to be a member of Prime. Excellent. Mm. Um, my recommendation is also horror adjacent, and it's also Amazon Prime. Um, so it's it's not really horror, but it is horrifying. Anybody who's uh, read or seen the version of 1984 um, by George right. Orwell will, uh, I'm sure, will attest that there are horrifying things in it. Um, yes. And in 1954, the BBC did a live adaptation. Of it, I mean that's obviously it's only six years after the book came out, 
Um, mm. And it was, this was in the early days of TV, and it was an incredibly controversial uh, production at the time. We were talking earlier about, you know, your producers having to stand up and, and, and answer questions about the the horror they've put out is a mark of success in the field. This particular production was talked about in the Houses of Parliament at the time. Wow. wow. Um, I think possibly it really upset the Queen. Or, or, hey. or, or, or something <laughs> like that. Um, and that is a it's badge got of honour. It's got a, a number of horror connections because... Um, I get to mention him twice this episode. It's got it's my favourite actor, Peter Cushing, playing Winston Smith. Uh, it's the role that it happened before he was a star of horror films. It led to him being uh, found by Hammer Films to do their movies. Um, and another actor who... Well, two other actors, actually, who'd go on to be stars of horror movies, Andre Morel and Donald Pleasance, are also in it. Um, and it's written and, pro- and produced and directed by... Uh, one of my favourite writers, Nigel Neal, and his producer-director partner, um, Rudolf Cartier, who had just basically invented the genre of science fiction horror on television with um, the Quatermass experiment the year before. So ah, it's a really significant team. And unfortunately, the Quatermass experiment doesn't really exist. I think they, 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 got, um, they lost most of the episodes. But this production, mm. 1984, does, and it's on Amazon Prime. Um, mm. and I really cool. recommend it it's, it's obviously very very dated um, but it's, I, I watched it when I was at uni and it's so powerful and an interesting companion piece on Prime they've also got the movie version that was made a couple of years later with a largely different cast I've not seen it but it could be an interesting example of Hollywood kind of going oh we'll have that, that would be great and then kind of changing almost everything that made the original version work um, which we've kind of talked about before in relation to kind of English language remakes and stuff. So the only connection yeah. between the TV version and the film is that Donald Pleasance is in both in a relatively <laughs> small role. But um, uh, but certainly the BBC one is fantastic and, and really worth the watch. And it's, uh, again, I think that's 90 minutes. So if you can handle the kind of very primitive production. It was done live as well, so I always find live TV kind of fascinating, especially in the early days, because they didn't have the ability to... You know, nowadays you do get live dramas sometimes, but they... Yeah, they do like a live EastEnders every now and then, don't they, or something Yeah, yeah, but they have more ability... for mistakes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the the (laughs) brilliant one last time where um, one of... uh, Joe Joyner called Ian Beale Adam, the actor's name being Adam Woodyard, yeah. (laughs) Um, <laughs> but nowadays, you know, unless the actor gets a ma- makes a massive howl howler like that, you know, usually <laughs> the, the technical people can cover up the joins quite easily, which wasn't so yeah. easy in the fifties. So I think that you know examples of live drama from that time are particularly um, interesting and, and kind of it makes them a little bit tense because you can almost sense that the actors are all terrified, um, <laughs> which I think is the same response so yeah so that's my recommendation not really horror adjacent but very important from a history of horror point of view and also very um just great in its own right so well i think that's wraps us up for this week um it does. we've just come up to our time limit as we always do so uh, <laughs> that just leaves me to say thank you very much, Stella, for guiding us on the first part of our journey through 
the history of US TV horror. <laughs> thank, thank you, you very much, Kirsty, for your contribution. And, well, I look forward to us all being back together next week to continue this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah can it be oh. cooler? That'd be good. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, let's hope yeah, so. Can you, turn it, can you turn it down, please? So Unanimous. <laughs> we'll all get better air conditioning between now and next week. <laughs> that might have to happen. All right, thanks very much, everybody. And thank you very much, right. listeners. And uh, you'll you. hear from us again soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Stella Gaynor, Kirsty Waro, and T.D. Velasquez. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at And Now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. And now the podcast stops. <laughs>